Welcome back to the Simple Farmhouse Life podcast. Today, we're going to chat gardening. It is that time of year. I'm sure all of you are very excited about it. I know that I am. I'm really just, I cannot wait to have bare feet out in that hot sun. Today, we're going to be chatting with Carrie from the Little Pallet Farmhouse. We have just all things gardening to discuss. So join us for this interview. My name is Lisa, mother of seven and creator of the blog and YouTube channel Farmhouse on Boone. Join me as I share with you my love for creating a handmade home from scratch cooking and a little mom and entrepreneur life along the way. Well, thank you so much for joining us here, Carrie. I was just reading through your entire story. So I know you on Instagram and YouTube as someone who helps people learn how to garden and you have so many practical tips, but your story is very interesting. I don't feel like maybe you don't share like your whole backstory all that often on your Instagram, but let's start there. So we are going to talk about gardening. I think everybody's probably getting pretty excited about that depending on your zone, but most people are starting to think about that that are in the audience. Let's start with your backstory. You can share however much you want to share, however little you want to share, but uh, just some introductions would be awesome. Sure. Well, it was really what got me into gardening, which is sort of why um, I thought to sort of give you a bit of my backstory would help. And like a lot of people, I did have parents and grandparents that that gardened, you know, especially post-World War II. Um, and I would love to tell you that it was them that got me into gardening. Um, but it was actually a bit more of a harrowing story. Uh, after I graduated medical school in England with a degree in physiology, I'd moved to London where I met and married a rugby athlete. He was an international athlete. And his life was cut short when just eight months into our marriage, he was diagnosed with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, or also known as motor neuron disease. And he was given 18 months to live. And the reason that's part of my story is because I'd come from a background of conventional medicine. Um, but yet here was, you know, conventional medicine had nothing to offer us. There was little understanding or awareness of the illness termed as a geriatric disease with little funding. And what happened because my husband was um, sort of a, a public figure, his story was all over the press. And some naturopaths had kind of then sort of reached out to us. And one of the things that I kept hearing again and again and again was that we needed to start looking at the food that we were eating, which was really the only sort of ammunition that we had, something that we could tangibly take control of to start to address what we were facing. And so what happened, it's sort of a snowball effect that as I began some research into, you know, food and what we were consuming, I actually came across a professor in uh, Illinois, Dr. Christine Farlow, who had written a book called The Shopper's Guide to Food Additives, where she listed over 300 additives and preservatives. Now, this was 20 years ago. She had independently tested most of them. And I was just blown away about how many of them were sort of actually seen to be toxic, carcinogenic, just really bad for your health. Um, and sort of coming from a science background, that really spoke to me. Yeah. And at the time, did you feel like the only way that you would be able to get healthy food into your home was to actually find a way to grow it? Was it not as I feel like 20 years ago, it was it was harder to find quality food than it is now, possibly. Right. I mean, fortunately for us, well, it was, it was a double edged sword. We were living in central London, so we were right in, in the heart of the city. I didn't really have space to grow food, although that was, you know, where I wanted to go. We had a small three foot by four foot balcony, but we lived quite close to a farmer's market uh, in Twickenham. And so what I learned how to do was to grow the things at home on the balcony um, that could influence the flavor of my cooking. So I grew a lot of herbs and spices and things mm -hmm. like that. And then for my bulk produce, I would go to the farmer's market where I would get, you know, bulk tomatoes and things like that. And then um, just being able to speak to the person who had produced it about how it had been produced and then to do things like chicken stock, I would go down to the local butcher and I would get his chicken carcasses and 
come home and make the stock with my own herbs. So that was really the beginning of my journey. And that was kind of where my homesteading journey began. Yeah. So it wasn't so much a focus on getting the bulk of your food from where you were gardening, but mostly just flavoring it because you were mentioning whenever I had received just your story that a lot of the flavors that we're tasting in store-bought food and restaurant food, it's chemical-based. And so you wanted to create a flavor that was good, that you wanted to actually eat, and you needed a lot of seasonings and herbs to actually make that happen because, I, I mean, I, I feel that sometimes when people first start cooking, they don't add enough salt and herbs, and it's just not as good as going out to eat or you know, getting something less healthy. Right. It can quickly turn you off um, <laughs> cooking from scratch when yeah. you don't actually know how to get the flavor back in. Because as you said, a lot of the flavor that is um, put into commercially produced food is done so synthetically with artificial flavorings and colorings, even uh, additives and preservatives that are there to make food even have a better texture about how it feels in your mouth, aside from a better color and looking better and, and those kind of things. So yeah, it was all about trying to relearn how to make, you know, home-cooked food taste good. Yeah. So another thing you mentioned is that you lived in a very small, you didn't have this big homestead. And now I know you and your family actually moved and started this from scratch homestead that you're completely building up. But you were talking about how your homestead journey looks very different than it looked then and how it's not about the space. So can you tell us a little bit about that transformation and what it was like where you lived and how you did a lot of the things that you do now and then why you ended up seeking out your place? Or if you want to tell us a little bit about your farm and what you're building there. Okay. So sort of fast forward 20 years, my now husband, uh, Caleb, is actually from the Midwest and um, we decided that we want, we were living in England at the time. We decided we wanted to move out to the US, which is obviously a loss to my family again to his, but someone was going to lose one way or the other. Right. But really for us just to have uh, the affordability of a bit more space and the ability to be able to homestead because of sort of the journey that I'd been on, um, you know, as you sort of like get into it, you want to be able to do more to produce more and see, well, could I put up enough tomatoes to last me the year? Can I, how much of my um, food can I actually produce? So to go from sort of growing on a, a small balcony in the city. So as I've sort of traveled and moved, um, and I always say the one thing that's hardest to relocate as a garden. I don't know how many avocado trees I've started again and again. And this time I say, I'm not moving because, you know, when those things become established, they're so precious. Mm -hmm. And so really I've sort of grown with the garden sort of along the different stages along the way. Um, and what we're doing here in the Midwest um, is we're ha we have a 20 acre homestead, largely it's wooded but then I've had to learn how to adapt to the changing soil types and climate um, and that kind of thing. And the different length of growing season with the UK being a much more temperate zone. So it's given me sort of a depth of experience of growing in, in different, in different areas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I like what you say about home setting that home setting, cooking from scratch or growing food is a mindset governed by principles and values, not a certain acreage or country house. And I like that because I feel the same way. Whenever we lived four years ago before we moved here on a quarter acre, I was doing almost all the same things that I am now. And I had learned all of that in our not country house. So yeah, I completely agree with that. Right. Yeah. It's very much a mindset. And like you say, the principles and values, it's not a certain acreage or the sort of the, the the dream that some people sort of like and visualize maybe because of Pinterest <laughs> you know the country yeah. farmhouse um but yeah very much sort of just the 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 values and principles of what you're trying to do and, and that can be done anywhere uh, being resourceful in different ways yeah okay I want to take a quick break from this episode to tell you about our home-based business. This isn't something I talk about a lot, but I get a lot of people who say they want to hear more about the entrepreneurial side of what is behind the podcast, Simple Farmhouse Life, my blog, 
my YouTube channel and all the components of the business that brought my husband home from his job almost five years ago. Now, the first thing that I started with my business was my blog. And still to this day, when people ask me where I would start, where I would put my attention if I was starting over now and the favorite aspect of my business, I always respond with blogging. There's a misconception out there that blogging is dead. And I find that interesting that we think the best place to put our efforts are some of the, the most popular places where everyone is doing that when there really is a almost like the best kept secret over in the blogging space it is far from dead and my favorite way to earn an income because i've built something there and it's only been in the last few years that I've realized just how beautiful it is to have built something that is so passive when everything else feels like a content treadmill. There is something that I've built that I now have in my blogging business. Now, there are things that I would have done completely differently if I was starting from scratch today, things that would get me to success and earn an income that I definitely did not know in the beginning. I made lots of mistakes. I created a one hour masterclass where I talk about these things. Some of the common misconceptions about blogging and earning an income with blogging and some of the things that I would most certainly change to get my blog monetized a lot faster. You can find that information and that masterclass over at bit.ly forward slash farmhouse blogging school. Whether you are simply curious, like how do you even make money on a blog or You've been thinking about it for a while, but you need some guidance. That is a great place to start. My free one hour masterclass is packed full of information. Again, you can get that at bit.ly forward slash farmhouse blogging school. Okay, so moving through your story a little bit, I know we're kind of going back and forth, but that's okay. Did your, well, I, I know because you said you're now husband, I'm sure people already know the answer, but did your husband recover and what is it that you learned from that that pushed you forward into continuing to ask questions, continuing to want to go down this path of learning how to do these things for yourself? Yeah. So um, unfortunately, my husband did die. Um, it was just five years later and at the young age of 38 although his neurologist thought he was a bit of an anomaly given that he had originally been given a prognosis of 18 months to live. It's a terrible illness. And that might sound like we lost the battle, um, but what he did with his profile is he gave a lot of hope to other people who I think prior to that thought that, you know, it's just a death sentence. There's nothing that you can do. And um, we actually even found a guy who had reversed his own symptoms of the illness and we actually flew him over to London to learn from him. And, you know, disappointingly, when he shared his story with his own doctors, they had then turned around on their diagnosis and said, oh, we must have misdiagnosed you. So it really made me disappointed with the medical world. And what was going on for me, as I said, I was fresh out of medical school with a degree in physiology. I, I think over here, the equivalent is like a pre-med uh, degree. But anyway, as a physiologist, you're the one in the lab doing the research. And as my husband was declining in health, I was pouring into the medical journals, looking for answers, trying to understand the biochemistry. Um, have you ever seen that movie, Lorenzo's Oil, about the little boy? And then his father figures out a sort of a combination of, of oils to actually help people with that disease. So anyway, it was kind of like on this pathway of scientific research. And I came across, and again, you know, 20 years ago, um, the food additive MSG, which I think a lot of people are familiar with today, monosodium glutamate is used in a lot of Chinese foods and chips and crackers. Often you don't know that it's in there. Uh, we met a Chinese practitioner who said, when you go to a Chinese takeout, make sure you tell them don't put MSG in the food because they just add it like, you know, salt or pepper. And I had found a study by the University of Calgary well, they actually showed how toxic it was to nerve cells. They had this little video and they added the MSG and this nerve cell kind of just like unzips itself. So I'd gone to the neurologist, <laughs> put this research on his desk and I said, hey, you know, can we measure the level of glutamate in the spinal fluids? What's going on in my, my husband's body? 
And he sort of like brushed it off to sort of say, look, you know, it can't cross the blood brain barrier. There's nothing that you're eating is able to affect your nervous system. But actually he had sort of like neglected to look at a different paper I'd put on his desk that showed that when we eat a meal and our blood glucose is elevated, then our blood brain barrier actually becomes permeable. It becomes more leaky. And there's certain things can cross that membrane at that time. And, you know, when I sort of looked at him, you know, expecting sort of like answers, he'd actually turned around to me and said, you know what, Carrie, you probably know more about this than me right now. And this is not a move to tear this man down. He was generally there to support us. He wanted the best outcome for us, like many doctors. But it was just that, you know, I was 100% putting my faith in um, modern medicine. And and he just didn't have the right information to help us. He was giving us the best information that he had. To me, it was a wake-up call that you need to be invested and take responsibility in in your own health. And as consumers, it's your responsibility to, to be informed. So, and, you know, one more thing before we do move on is that now, 20 years later, they have actually scientifically linked monosodium glutamate to a whole host of neurological diseases, including autism, uh, bipolar, chronic fatigue, depression, and also motor neuron disease, which is what my husband has. So, and, and what's quite staggering is that even though that research is out there, it's continued to be approved for use in food. So. Hmm. Yeah, I really like what you said about just being able to advocate for yourself because you were this very concerned wife. You obviously did have some medical training, but even even people who don't, you were digging through studies that this doctor, how could he possibly have the time to dig that deep for every single one of his patients? It's just it's not, it wouldn't be possible. So for someone who is very concerned, like a mother, like a wife or a a husband to be so invested, I, I completely agree. That's something that I've learned a lot over the last 15 years of being a mom is not to always just take everything exactly as this is how it is. There's a lot more to learn and there's always more information that's coming to light. Like you said, now we kind of know that there's that link there. And some of the other things that you discovered are probably more well known now. And, you know, to, to not be able to, or, or not think that you're capable of doing the things that you have control over is something that I think a lot of people miss. And it really lead it can lead to, you know, things that there's a lot that you can learn from it. And so with that, you got into gardening and learning how to source your own food from all of this, what would you recommend? You started on a a balcony to your homestead now. Do you lay out or do you have those steps mapped out for others to follow if they have never started on any path like this? I absolutely do. I'm, I'm really passionate about helping other people learn to grow food, especially if they, not just if they don't know how, but if they feel like they want to, but they have limited time and space and budget, because I've been there. And um, I absolutely think that, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And I would say the most important thing to do is to start small. Because if you take giant leaps, then often you're going to get yourself in a mess. And I think that making small changes is the one thing that people can do because we need to develop new habits. And if we try to change everything at once, and I, I'm sort of preaching to myself here because <laughs> sometimes I want to sort of do everything all at once. And then I get so far down the path and think, oh, you dummy, I need, <laughs> need to just scale back a bit. And, you know, because I think that's where uh, success is found. So I don't know if I'm digressing from your original question, but the the steps that I map out have actually just recently launched a new book. It's a program called Ready, Steady, Grow. And what I do is I take not necessarily the beginner gardener, but someone who wants to achieve growing organic produce, who is maybe challenged by their time, space and budget. Um, We start with grow bags. Um, It's something that I, I 
recommend um, as manageable. You can do a lot with grow bags. So we start with that. We go through 10 crops and we repeat this cycle of growing, harvesting, storing and using. I think a lot of people underestimate plants. You know, I, you know, one pepper plant is going to maybe give you like 10 peppers. Well, if I came home from the store and put 10 peppers on your counter, you know, you might not have a plan for those. And so when you've got a plant that suddenly starts throwing peppers at you, <laughs> you need to know what to do. And, you know, put tomato plants are way more productive than that. So I think even just starting with, you know, one or two plants to sort of get a handle on, well, what am I going to do with this once it's once the plant is producing? Because at that time, you need to sort of, you know, be on the ball and start moving and, and know what to do. Yeah. And something I find interesting that I've noticed that I've done a lot over the years and that I've seen other people doing is we get very wrapped up in the it's gardening season and you go to the nursery and they have all of these different plants and you buy a bunch of things that you don't normally use in your kitchen. And so then whenever it's like you don't think about what it's going to be like eight weeks from now when you have a million eggplant and you never make eggplant, you don't really have any plan for how you're going to do it, but you're wasting garden space on that. So yeah, have you noticed that? Or what are some of the basic crops that you recommend people starting with? Well, I think you make a really good point, Lisa. You you want to grow what you're going to use. But with that, I think you have to stay within the constraints of your zone. So don't take a leaf out. I'm sort of one of those people who loves to be challenged by growing things that are out of zone. Like, you know, I mentioned avocados. Don't start with that. You're likely not going to get avocados. <laughs> but do start with, A, what you're going to use, and B, what's suited to your zone. So, um, you know, as I mentioned in my book, that there are, there are crops that are suited to longer growing seasons and shorter growing seasons, and that's all linked to your climate. Your length of season is going to dictate primarily what's going to grow well um, in the area that you live in. Yeah. So it really just depends. You and I are both in similar zones, I think. And so I think we, I was kind of wondering, you said avocado. I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I can grow that here, but you're up for the challenge. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) So with uh, it being March, what plants are worth growing from seed and which should you buy as started plants? If you're starting out, would you say to grow a lot of it from seeds or what are your tips with that, especially for the beginning gardener? Yeah, I always say, and this is one thing that I do talk about in the book, is that if you're starting out, buy as much as you can that it are already started plants. There's just a lot that, that can go wrong with seeds. It's not, it's not rocket science, but you know, if you're indoor starting, that's what we call force starting. And so you are trying to create the ideal conditions for that seed to germinate. Um, And there's just a lot of variables. And I think that if you are just finding your feet, you want to just wait a little bit until the last frost date has passed and then go to your local nursery. Um, You can order plants online. I've certainly done that for some hydrangeas or or certain varieties that, that I've wanted to buy. But for your produce, if you go to a local nursery, chances are that the varieties that they are selling there are already going to be sort of adapted for your zone. Um, because, you know, we keep talking about avocados. They have actually now created a hybridized dwarf avocado tree that will grow in zone five, but that's not standard for avocados. So what I'm saying is that when you go to a nursery, usually the the plant selection that is on offer there is, is more likely to be suited to the area that you live in. Yes. Okay. So as far as seed starting, I'm actually... Our family's going on vacation. And then right after that, I'm going to start all my seeds. And I've done a lot of different methods in the past. And I can't say that I've ever really nailed anything down that's worked really well. So what is the seed starting setup that you recommend? I start seeds in lots of different ways. I like to experiment. I think if I was going to tell anybody to, you know, just the the straightforward um, seed starting, I I don't do soil blocking or anything like that. What I tend to do is I get a seed tray and I just fill it with a potting mix. Uh, uh, you would get a store-bought potting mix like miracle Grow. It has an inbuilt fertilizer. And the reason that I go for a potting mix over a seed starting mix is that seed starting mix 
has got no nutrition in it. Seeds will start on anything. You see people start them on kitchen towel because they have their inbuilt food store. But the minute that those green leaves appear, then the seed needs to photosynthesize and needs to be able to draw nutrients from the soil. So I kind of skip that step by just starting the seeds in a potting mix. And then what I'll do is I'll pre-moisten the potting mix. And I, I do that because if you plant your seeds and then water, especially with the small seeds, they tend to kind of like get thrown around and you can't tell where they are. So I will mm-hmm. pre-moisten a tray of potting soil and then literally just use a piece of stick or a bamboo cane. And I will make little rows, like as if it was a garden bed. I'll just make little rows. Okay. And then I will sprinkle my rows of seeds down each one, label at the end. And then after about two to three weeks, when the seeds have germinated and, and they're putting on their first pair of true leaves. So the first pair of leaves that you see are not true leaves. They're, they're cotyledons. The second pair of leaves that you see are called the true leaves. And and that's when the plant is really starting to photosynthesize. At that point, or soon thereafter, I will take that little seedling and start to transplant it into a pot of its own. Now, in terms of temperature and light, some seeds need light to germinate. Some seeds don't. You know, a Google search would, would let you know, like onion seeds do not need light. Peas do. So just seed by seed. and I do have grow lights up because, again, as soon as they will uh, germinate, they'll, they'll need seed. Someone was asking me the other day about sunlight um, in a windowsill. If you've got a big sunny window, it's as good as a grow light. Um, someone was asking me if the UV is filtered out by windows. And UVB is filtered out by windows, but plants actually don't need that to grow. They operate more on a blue-red spectrum. And they only need the UVA when they're putting on size. But anyway, not to overcomplicate things, a sunny windowsill will do. Grow lights are good because you'll get your full spectrum. And then with heat, I sometimes use a heat mat and I sometimes don't. Depends how fast I want them to germinate. So if I'm wanting to start tomatoes very early, then I would use a heat mat because they need a higher level to um, a higher temperature to, to germinate. But okay. right now, I don't know if I want my tomatoes to germinate. So I might just leave them off the heat and let it warm up a little bit. I start my seeds in the basement. So um, I let the house temperature do some of that work sometimes. So um, again, that's why I say there's quite a lot, that, a lot of variables with seed starting based on the needs of that specific plant. Yeah. I have this huge picture window, a south facing window. And I've always started the seeds there. And I think my biggest issue, because I feel like it hasn't been all that successful, even though light wise, it should be because it's a very bright room. And I put it right by the window. I think it is the heat that's my issue. And so I was thinking about moving everything down to the basement, obviously with grow lights, because there's not much in there. But then like the heat issue is is something. So do you put a heater on in your basement or... How or what kind of lights do you get? I'm ready to completely redo my entire setup at this point. Well, our basement runs at about 50 degrees, which is kind of like an ideal temperature for um, seed starting. Apart from things like peppers and tomatoes, it would want to be a bit warmer. Okay. Um, but most other seeds will germinate at around 50 to 55 degrees. And our basement is on central air. So if your basement runs a lot colder than that, your brassicas might start, but other things would probably require um, a heat mat. And a pro- the problem with your window might be that sometimes, depending on how filtered the sunlight is, you can get where seeds start to reach. Do they stretch? They tend to like lean and stretch towards the light. And then, mm-hmm. and then yeah. what you have to do is then mm-hmm. turn the seeds round. In situations like that, what I've tended to do is to repot them. And then as soon as I can, get them um, somewhere outside, even sort of under a, a cold frame so that the, the light is coming from sort of all directions. But uh, yeah, a basement can work. But if it doesn't have good light, then you need to provide the light for the seeds. Yeah. Yeah. I think also I'm kind of drawn to the basement idea because they get they get knocked by children because we have a lot of children. And so I have this beautiful south facing window, but it's also our living room. And so I'm trying to figure out how I can make this process just 
it actually works. I, I want to start my tomatoes. I want to start my flowers because I, I care about that. The rest it, or it can just start outside. But as far as, you know, I, I want to have tomatoes before August. And so to do that, I'm going to have to start them indoors. And I think I need a whole whole new setup for that because it's just been very unsuccessful. I, they've, they've worked, but just never great. And so I'm thinking I'm going to do just some shelving and then some lights in between that is kind of my plan. So, yeah, yeah. I have a, a shelf system um, that has a, uh, uh, I have, I think I, it was a pack of, they're in my Amazon shop and I can't remember the name of them, but there are grow lights that come in a six okay. pack and they were very inexpensive. Um, and I just zip tie those grow lights on to, to the shelves. So there's like two per shelf, one in each corner and they sort of like, you know, shine in. And yeah, I think I've got about six shelves. I also have a a grow light that is a is a normal light color because you can get them where they're not, they don't shine pink or blue. And I quite like that one, but it was a little more expensive. So I actually just hang that one up in the room in the basement and it, it looks like a normal light, but it, it, it's got a full spectrum to it. So you can get those as well if you don't want your basement to be sort of glowing pink out the window. <laughs> I don't really care. We don't live where anybody would ever see our basement window. So nobody would, it doesn't matter. Whatever works for us is what I'm going to do. <laughs> we live out in the country, so nobody's going to see it anyways. What what seeds are you starting or what seeds have you started so far? So um, what have I got? I've got a whole range. I, I recently did peas, which are probably a little early and I might use those for pea shoots and then restart some more peas. I've got cabbage and broccoli in the basement. I've actually got two pepper plants that I overwintered from last year that were producing peppers this winter. Um, I've got a whole bunch of herbs, you know, my rosemary. uh, I say oregano. Do you say oregano? My husband's always correcting me. (laughs) I've got Uh, um, that. Well, I mean, yeah, neither way is probably right, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've got basil, basil. what else have I got? Uh, oh, I started artichokes. They've just started germinating because uh, they need a little longer of a growing season. And asparagus I'm starting this year. I, I probably will buy some asparagus crowns because it just takes a few years for asparagus to get going. But um, I want lots. So I've also started a pack of seeds and I can see the, the beginnings of them germinating now. So yeah. Oh, the other thing that I am growing... <laughs> And again, it's an, an out of area, but it's coffee. I um, actually brought some Arabica coffee seeds back with me from the UK. Wow. Might be a little bit naughty, but anyway, <laughs> I've um, started them in the basement and uh, we'll see what happens. My my husband loves coffee. So I was like, well, I'm going to see if I can grow some coffee beans. So we'll see. You're ambitious. I'm just like, okay, I think I'm going to grow only tomatoes and flowers this year and call it a day and herbs because summer is not summer without herbs. I want to take a break from this episode to tell you about a sponsor, Tubes & Co. Organic Skincare. I have loved Tubes & Co. for I don't even know how long now. <laughs> they use high quality ingredients like grass-fed tallow. All winter long, I have been putting that stuff on my face three or four times a day. I just leave the little jar sitting out so that I can go back over and put it on my face again because I really struggle with dry skin in the winter. And natural moisturizers a lot of times don't have ingredients that absorb into the skin. Usually they're very oily, they sit on top of the skin. I've really struggled with that. Tallow does. And they focus on those types of high quality ingredients throughout all of their products. So I'm also a huge fan of the makeup. Currently, I have on the Tubes & Co. foundation, their little eyebrow thing I just started getting into. It is the best. It has a brush on one side and then a little pencil on the other. Their mascara. I haven't tried anything that I didn't like. I've been referring family and friends. And then, of course, my listeners. It just so happens they sponsor this show. But I am all in sold on Tubes & Co. products for sure. I will be a lifelong customer. I've always wanted a high quality makeup and skincare source, everything from the face wash to the moisturizers to the makeup. And it's just really hard to find. Tubes & Co. is a family company 
They're made right here in the USA. All the things I love supporting. They are offering Simple Farmhouse Life listeners 10% off your order with the code FARMHOUSE. So you can go over to tubesandco.com and use the code FARMHOUSE to try out some beautiful skincare products that I know you're going to love. Okay, so with the next set of questions that people wanted us to talk about, we put up a question box over on Instagram, is garden infrastructure location. What are your recommendations for where to put the garden and then also your favorite ways? So whether it's no-till or or not no-till, that's that's what they call it in the farmer world, Um, no-dig, Container gardening, yeah. What is it that you would recommend for people if they're if they're starting, and then also if people have been frustrated with their garden, some better ways to do it. Okay, so as I said, with starting out, I'm always going to recommend you start with containers and grow bags, and the reason for that is because you control the soil. Um, when when you get into garden or or gardening in a, a sort of a row crop situation then you're going to deal with what's already in the ground. And that can be diseases, it can be pests. I, I think probably a lot of people in our region get experience or they, <laughs> they get a fast learning curve with Japanese beetles. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it, it, with, a, with a, a grow bag or, or a pot, you get to control um, the soil that goes in there. So um, the other thing that having containers allows you to do as a beginner gardener is to keep your crops close. I'll put my hand up and say that, you know, having gardened for many, many years, there are plenty of crops that I have neglected. I end up with the Amazon jungle. I get weeds. You know, I if something is too far away and I don't get to it enough, then, you know, the garden does its thing. So with containers and, and grow bags, having them on your back door, doorstep, um, I have, you know, ginger and basil in the house right now, and I, I tend to them on a daily basis. So, you know, even the tiniest little sprouting of a, mm-hmm. a weed seed comes straight out. So I think that just to kind of get plants into the rhythm of your life, if you're starting out, then then keep them close. Moving up from there, and I would say getting into raised beds is going to allow you a bit more space. It's going to allow you to experiment with things like companion planting, it's going to still allow you to control the soil, but then sort of maybe be a bit more productive. And then from there, you know, maybe go to sort of a, um, you know, a square foot garden sort of area before you sort of, you know, think about getting into sort of like row crops or, or longer beds. So, and I, I've maintained it. I've got a, a combination of everything. I, I have my pots and containers. I have my raised beds and then I have 60 foot rows where I'll grow, you know, lots of different things in different years. So yeah, I think variety and creativity. Um, I like to add the arches and a lot of trellises and vertical growing to my raised beds. You can also do that with containers as well. So um, there are no rules, you know, you can, uh, you can really do a lot of different things. Yeah. We have our, our gardens kind of far from the house because we live in a very wooded area. <clears throat> so there's only one place that we could actually put the garden. But for my herbs, I've always just did one of my raised beds with herbs. And in a pinch, whenever I'm in the middle of making dinner, I will never run out to the garden to get it. But last year, we made this little patio area in the back, like just right behind our house. And for decoration, I put herbs in a pot just because it looked really pretty with the ferns and everything. And I visited that thing nonstop all summer long. Like I just needed something really quick. It was just steps away. And my other garden's not that far. It's, you know, I don't know how to estimate 100 feet away, but that's enough. Right to never want to go while like the chicken is simmering on the stove or browning. There's not enough right. time for that. So I just yeah. wouldn't do it. I, I'd send the kids out to gather a whole bunch, but just real quick, it's so important to have things like that, that you're not going to harvest, but you want them fresh as you are cooking things right by the house. So yeah, this year I'm going to be putting several pots of herbs and just keep all the herbs. I probably won't even do an herb garden out there. It doesn't even make sense because you don't harvest herbs. I mean, you can if you want to, at the end of the season, cut them all down, dry them, uh, freeze dry, whatever you want to do. But normally you're using them for fresh cooking. And so with that, it almost never makes sense to go out and get a huge basket of herbs 
you want them in the moment. So yeah, I think that's a really good tip. Okay, so you mentioned having the grow bags and the raised beds for the soil. What are some of your tips, easy tips for acquiring the good soil? So if you, soil can get expensive. Yeah. I would say to start with for your, your grow bags um, and containers, like I said at, at the beginning, just go with a store-bought potting mix. Again, what you're buying is sterile soil, soil and it's going to be free from fungus and bacteria. And it's just, it eliminates a lot of things that can go wrong when you're starting out and growing in pots. Up from there, um, to fill a raised bed, and you know, you've probably seen there's been a lot of videos on on Instagram how you can pack raised beds with um, you know, logs and things you're not filling the whole bed itself full of, of soil. If you live in an area where you're you know you're close to a farm, I would say make friends with a farmer who's got cows because they always have um cow manure and it's mm -hmm. a really cheap way to you know to buy we've got people from sort of the local village who will come to get our horse manure and they just bring a trailer and then they they fill it up by hand and and drive away with it so um the only problem with farm manure is that it's going to have a lot of weed seed in it so be prepared for that you know when when the growing season comes around you will get there are ways to deal with that but uh, weed seed is something that you're going to get with fresh um, composted organic manure. As I say, you can buy it um, and you can buy it where it's been cleaned, but you're going to pay a lot of money. So it doesn't kind of like fit with my ethos of gardening on a budget. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that some people, you know, when they keep chickens or ducks, that's great fertilizer that you can collect yourself and put it um, on your garden. And then even just your, your kitchen waste, you know, before <laughs> we had animals that would eat our kitchen scraps, you know, I used to keep it all in a, I had a dedicated sort of trash can outside and everything would go in there. And uh, over time with the heat, it just starts to, you know, break down into beautiful, um, rich dirt. So those are some of the ways that, you know, I would personally start to sort of like build good soil is, um, is, is through composting animal manure um, and then, yeah, resourcing things from your garden. Another one I missed out is leaf mold. Although it takes a couple of years, sometimes, you know, you do something and you put it away so you can fill bags, um, uh, like feed bags or plastic bags with um, dead leaves in the fall. And then you just tie them up and then you store them somewhere. And as they rot down, that makes a perfect sort of uh, humus that you can add in, into your soil. So, or even fill your raised beds with, uh, straw, leaves, all that kind of stuff at the base of the raised mm -hmm. bed so that it's rotting down underneath um, the plants above. So yeah, yeah. You mentioned earlier getting lights that aren't the typical color that you expect for grow lights. I like the idea you'd mentioned putting it in a different way, or maybe I, I was brainstorming, putting a light like that in a lamp for somebody who lives in a very small space or an apartment, putting a light like that in like a really cute lamp, either on the kitchen counter or in the living room and growing things year round indoors. What are some of your favorite things to grow in that way? So indoors, um, there are sort of different plants that will grow with a requirement for less light. So for example, ginger, it grows, I think it only needs about, it's it's a sort of a shady garden plant and turmeric is in the same family and they're great spices to have on hand. And with ginger, you can actually harvest it while it's growing. After about four months, um, you can just like take little pieces off. And with ginger, a little goes a long way. So you can sort of have this constant supply. It's happy in a window, it grows indoors, it needs less than five hours of light a day. But yeah, it's a great idea. And there are now these sort of I don't know, contraptions that you can buy, not that I'm recommending them, but this this idea, as you say, it's a sort of a, a small grow light. I haven't seen them in a sort of a traditional style bulb. I've only ever seen them in the sort of like the tube bulbs. Oh, okay. But, yeah. you know, what, what, why not, you know, with your under counter lighting, now you've got me brainstorming, you could, you know, put those little tube mm -hmm. lights and under your kitchen counter and have, you know, a little sort of 
row of herbs that would grow quite happily underneath there. So um, I think there's there's all kinds of things you could do. I, I've been experimenting with indoor tomatoes and peppers and things like that. But in my kitchen, I always like to have access to herbs and different things that I can use in, in cooking. So yeah, I like the idea of brainstorming ways to make them look pretty and aesthetic. Because when I think of starting seeds indoors, I'm usually thinking, how fast can I get these out of here? Because I don't like how the whole setup looks. That's why I want to move it down to the basement. But it does, it sounds fun to think of ways to incorporate not the whole seed starting setup because that is just going to be messy, but a few things here and there throughout your home that would actually be really pretty with it as well. Okay, so for some of the specific plants questions that we got, what are some of the best medicinals and flowers for cuttings? I love fresh flowers all summer. Me too. Well, medicinal plants are sort of, I mean, goodness, <laughs> it's almost like a whole book in itself because, yeah, you know, medicinal plants and herbs are, are really sort of the subject of, of botanical gardens. And, and there are huge botanical gardens which grow hundreds of thousands of species. But I know that when people think about medicinal uses, they're mainly thinking about herbs. One of the, the flowers that is, is grown widely and I think commonly um, understood to be beneficial is the calendula. And you can use that to create balms. It's got an anti-inflammatory property that you can use on, on your skin. A favorite of mine is chamomile. I love to cut and dry chamomile flowers that you can just make your tea. I don't know why you would spend the money on chamomile tea bags when chamomile, it, it grows like a weed. It's so easy to grow and you get loads of it. And so you definitely, definitely uh, want to be growing um, chamomile. Mint mm -hmm. is another good one as well. Mint grows, well, I think a lot of people know that mint will take over your garden if you let it. So it's great for growing in a pot, um, easy to dry, is very vigorous. Um, and again, you can use mint in teas. You can make it, you know, chocolate mint ice cream, things like uh, mint jelly. It, it's quite a tradition, traditional English type of sauce, but it goes very well with roast lamb. So there's lots of ways that, that you can use that. I'm getting back to food again, aren't we talking about that's for, right. <laughs> for medical properties. Um, ginger, as I mentioned before, is, a, is an antiviral and antifungal. And uh, it's, it's another one that I love to have around. Um, it's actually got many more. There, there are so many plants, actually, that are just, when I say superfoods, they have such powerful nutritional and medicinal qualities because of their antioxidant properties and the vitamins and nutrients that they deliver to you. So whatever you can grow and, and consume fresh, I think is a, is medicine. Yeah, definitely. I know we put so many things like echinacea and I'm trying to remember what all comes up in the front of our yard as landscaping. And I love it because you can make teas with them. They're beautiful. You can cut them and put them into flower arrangements you can dry them out so that all winter long, you can have bundles of things like chamomile, beautiful for that, echinacea, hang them in bundles, hanging from somewhere in your kitchen just to have something sort of fresh and herbs all throughout the winter really brightens everything up. And it's yeah. like you mentioned, some of those are just so easy to grow. They come back year after year. Even if you are terrible at gardening, you can grow mint obviously everybody can grow that just throw it out there and you won't be able to get rid of it yeah. so it's yeah there's lots of things like that yeah most people don't know as well that roses the plant family of roses are actually edible as well because you don't think that we make rose hip syrup from um the fruit of roses and so that's just another one i was always fascinated growing up by um, rose hip syrup and it didn't dawn on me until probably 20 years later that actually that came from a rose bush so. Yeah. Yeah. So many of those things that we don't even think about as food that we put in as landscaping is, you know, you can actually use them. So they have so many purposes and roses are, I wish I would have started putting roses in earlier. We we moved here four years ago and I just started putting roses in the last couple of years. So I'm like, why did I not do that faster? Okay. Tell us about your program, Ready, Steady, Grow. You have, I believe, some kind of discount or bonus you're going to tell us about as well for your program. So Ready, Steady, Grow is a framework, uh, a system that I put together around developing skills um, to develop 
habits for people who want to grow a bounty in their backyard on on a budget and, and people who have who lead busy lives and who have limited time and space and so what it what I said I think I said earlier sort of describe how the program works but quickly again it's 10 crops on a repeating cycle learning how to grow how to harvest how to store how to use and it, it includes a lot of the tips and tricks we've talked about for growing how to know when to harvest, the signs to look for when not to harvest, um, basic methods for curing and drying, freezing um, produce for storage, how to make extracts and syrups, lots of ideas and suggestions for how to use your produce, and then lots of healthy recipes uh, for smoothies and uh, other cooking. And yes, I added some bonuses because as we sort of like get bitten by the bug with gardening, you sort of, you know, want to think about what's ahead. So I included a bonus on garden design. There's also mini guides for transplanting and bolting, which is another phenomenon that a lot of people get a bit worried about. Um, I put in a guide on composting, sort of the perfect compost blend, the things that you can compost, the things that, that you shouldn't. So all of that together, there's 10 modules in the main book and then a book on garden design and then three mini guides. So it's all for your audiences. They can grab it for just $27. Um, and that's going to be a seven day promotion um, that runs from today. So, Okay, awesome. So that'll be linked down in the show notes. And let's see, follow along with you over on Little Palette Farmhouse, over on Instagram, on your YouTube channel. Thank you so much, Carrie, for sharing your wisdom. People can go follow along with you and follow all throughout this upcoming season to get tips along the way and potentially have their questions answered. So thank you again. Thanks, Lisa. It's been a joy to catch up with you. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. I will see you in the next episode of the Simple Farmhouse Life podcast.